Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's wonderful to see so many of you here, or perhaps I mean it's really daunting. Um, as a physicist, I... Well, this is my first foray to the Literary Festival. I did, in fact, speak at the other festival, How the Light Gets In, the Philosophy Festival, some years ago. Um, so it's not the first time I've been in a tent in hay, but this is altogether a superior construction. So you've heard that I'm a soft matter physicist, but when the university asked me if I'd like to come and give a talk, I didn't think that was probably the right kind of topic. So what I'm going to be talking about is some of the... Um, sort of ideas behind a lot of my work. I was the university's gender equality champion for four years. I am very involved with trying to see that we have more w women progressing into particularly the physical sciences and engineering. And um, so I'm going to talk about some of these ideas that I've gathered together over the past, well, I guess, decade or so. And I should say, you heard that I was master of Churchill College. If you don't know Churchill College, um, actually, that, oh, this isn't going to work. My laser pointer is nothing like strong enough, so let's hope I don't need it very much. Um, Churchill College, as represented by that logo, um, was founded as the uh, National and Commonwealth Memorial to Sir Winston, but his vision was of establishing something in the UK that was like MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So we're the only Oxbridge college that has, by statute, a requirement that we admit 70% of our students from the STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And the consequence is, although, and I'm really proud of this, we were the first college to vote to admit women in either Oxford or Cambridge, nevertheless, we struggle to get girls applying because I think they think engineering, that's not for me, I shouldn't go to Churchill. So if any of you have smart daughters, granddaughters, nieces, whatever, we're on the lookout for them. So how cultural stereotyping damages innovation? I want to bring together a little bit of economics, which is not my subject. Um, so any economists in the argument apologize if I'm being naive, but I think the principles are clear. We have a problem. Uh, we have a problem with our economy, we have a problem with innovation and productivity. And part of the problem is, oh dear, this has fallen off the bottom of the screen, never mind. Um, I've, I've got some graphs here which I've taken from a physicist colleague's uh, work on innovation, looking at... Um, this graph here is output per hour, so it's a measure of productivity. And the, the axis along the bottom is years, and it starts, let me go back here, it starts in 1970 and goes up to um, th this tick mark here is 2020. And you can see we had nice linear growth. Everyone thing was very happy until the financial crash when we fell off a cliff edge. And we have a very substantial gap in where that curve was extrapolated to, to where we are now. This is looking at um, the change in productivity as a function of time over the same time period. And again, you can see that huge fluctuations, but in recent years, our increase in productivity has diminished. So we just aren't, as a nation, being at all productive. And if you think that's bad, there's an 18% fall off between the sort of extrapolated growth um, from 1970 onwards, 18% gap, that was 2016 figures. And during the time I was writing this talk, he produced the next year's figures, and it's got even worse. So this country has a problem. It is much worse in this country than in other countries. Compared with Germany or France, our productivity is really going badly. It's stagnated. And the reason that matters is that it's bad news for our economy, and we all know that our economy is struggling. Um, I'm not going to talk about Brexit. My colleague from Cambridge um, has just talked to 500 of you on Brexit in another tent. Um, I will leave that aside. What that will do to the economy, I don't think anyone really has a clue. 
but um, I'm going to concentrate on this more limited focus. So, if innovation is what we need to overcome this stagnation in productivity, then we obviously need new ideas and as many people as possible doing things that can help contribute to innovation. And I'm defining economics in this way, um, which I think is a fairly standard way. Um, so innovation is extracting more value from the same amount of labor and capital. Obviously, if you have more people or you invest more in capital, you'd expect growth. But if nothing changes, what can you do to get more value out of what is done? So we need as many people as possible we have, as an economy, relied very heavily on certain sectors. Um, North Sea gas, when it came online, made a massive difference to our apparent productivity because we suddenly had a new cheap source of energy. The financial sector, uh, the Big Bang and all that, also led to an enormous apparent increase. But both these are essentially bubbles that have passed. And so that's one of the reasons um, we're not seeing growth in other sectors. We know manufacturing has been diminishing. If you take something like steel, um, Tata tent over there, if you take steel, um, it's gone from being a sort of high-value product back in the 70s to just a very cheap commodity, which really isn't produced in large volumes in this country. So we need new ideas, and we need to make sure that those ideas wherever they originate, be it in a university like mine or in someone's garage, we need to be able to translate those ideas into products and into commercial success. And that is no small step. So when people think about growth and innovation, they obviously think about what's happened to computing, for instance. And Moore's Law is a, a well-known example of an area where there has been massive growth. So Moore's law, as originally stated, said that the number of transistors per square inch, it's an American law, because I would think in terms of square centimeters or meters, number of transistors per square inch on integrated circuits doubles every year. Um, it's being revised to say that the data density doubles approximately every 18 months. And you probably can't see the writing on this graph, um, but it's got all the different kinds of microprocessors and chips, so Pentium and variations of Pen Pentium and Intel and all the rest of it. So there's been a massive increase, and people, have, I think, have looked at that and felt comforted that we're just going to go on getting better in this incredibly fast way forever. First of all, there is a major problem in that physical constraints mean that you just can't go on doubling like this because you simply can't get enough. Um, you, ca you can't get what you need in smaller and smaller sizes. You reach real limits of physics. But it's also the case that this is one area which has, I think, misled people into thinking that all innovation can be like this, and we, we can come up with lots of similar examples. And in fact, this is an exception, not the rule, and isn't a good indicator. So I would say that we need scientists and engineers well-trained to um, enter the idea of new products, new services, innovation, and how do we make sure that the best and brightest with the talents needed enter this. And so if you are a child and you're thinking about what kind of career do you go into, you might be interested to know, does a scientist look like me? So if you Google scientist images, um, you'll see various things. All the scientists, with the exception of Einstein and the teacher, are wearing white lab coats. Is that really what scientists look like? Small proportion do. I haven't worn a white lab coat probably since I was a PhD student, except when people demand it for photographs. Um, we've got Einstein there. People often think scientists necessarily have sticking up hair. Actually, my hair is sticking up quite a lot this morning. Um, but they're mainly doing chemistry, actually. Test tubes seem a necessity as well. Um, and really, that is not a good representation. In fact, in this series of images, I was quite impressed. They had got quite a lot of women, because um, you can Google various things like professor and whatever, and you will never get a woman coming up on the first page. Um, stereotypically, um, it will be a white male. I'm not going to talk about other aspects of diversity here. I am going to con concentrate on gender, but you could probably extrapolate to ethnic origin and things as well.
So I would say that's not actually a very good representation of what a scientist looks like. Um, here's, here's a slightly different one. Um, this is called famous scientists. Um, I'm not sure many children of today would want to identify with any of these, um, but at least there are some sort of slightly more normal-looking people here. Um, as a fellow of the Royal Society, one of the things I have been battling there is that an awful lot of the photographs are... Uh, oh, sorry, the portraits look... I mean, this, this is one that's at the Royal Society, this is Darwin. Um, they are elderly, white males, often in wigs, uh, occasionally in a pith helmet. Um, and I just feel, no, no, if the public is coming into the Royal Society, our National Academy of Sciences, that's not what we want to encourage them, that scientists are actually perfectly normal people you can have a conversation with, and you might want to be one yourself. So I think we can do better. Um, we have a long way to go in how we portray scientists. What about innovation and innovators? What do they look like? Well, we, we have a problem in this country. People always say we're good at science and bad at innovation. That's not actually a very accurate statement. We're not that bad at innovation. We're just bad at commercial success. Um, so this is what Google tells me an innovator image looks like. And mainly you have to be a light bulb. And I don't think that's very good for our 12-year-old children either. Um, so if you, if you sort of keep scrolling down the page, you eventually get to some people. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I don't think that's very encouraging either. Um, I'm not quite sure what that's trying to portray. Um, I, but I think you can see why, if that's what girls are being shown, they're not coming to Churchill, because if they think we're full of that, not too good. So. I don't think any of those images are very useful if you are trying to make young children of either sex think, I want to be a scientist, I want to be an engineer, I want to be an innovator. So, let me focus a little more on gender issues. Now, I was trying to remember where I got this infographic from. Uh, it's either uh, the Women's Engineering Society or Women in Science and Engineering, but it's looking at numbers from engineering. And, and essentially, what it is saying is, we have a problem. Um, engineering produces a huge amount. The figure here is 450-odd billion pounds for uh, the UK GDP. Um, we have a skills shortfall. People are always talking about the skills shortfall in this kind of area. Um, but if we look at what it means for education, here on your right, two in five STEM teachers feel confident about giving careers advice about engineering. One in four parents knows what people working in engineering do. And if you can't talk about engineering, if you can't get careers advice, you're not particularly likely to think about it as a career. Um, 17 to 19-year-olds underestimate the average starting salary of a graduate engineer by 27%. So if money is what motivates them, they probably want to know a bit more. But let me concentrate on this bit in the middle. Of a cohort of 1,011-year-olds, 111 boys and 101 girls will achieve a physics GCSE at A star to C or equivalent. So if you want to do engineering, you will need physics or double science. Uh, GCSE, and then go on to study A-level. So out of that cohort, 44 boys and 13 girls will achieve a physics A-level or equivalent. We've already lost a massive number of girls from, from that cohort. So um, about a, th a third as many girls go on to do physics A-level as boys. And when it comes to degree level, 21 males and three females, so we've now got to a proportion of seven to one, will obtain an engineering and technology degree. They started off at GCSE with pretty much the same qualifications, and they are falling by the wayside. They are not moving on to a position where they can study uh, physics or engineering at university. And I think that is a major problem. So we have to try and work out why. And I'll come on to that. So here are some more statistics. 9% of the engineering workforce is female. One of the engineering societies has a sort of slogan, 9% is not enough. And I think we could all agree of that. 6% of registered engineers and technicians, so chartered engineers, for instance, are women. And in case you think, as I have been told, well, maybe girls just don't like physics, this is not an international problem. This is something about our culture in the UK. In other countries, we have far more girls staying on and doing physics engineering. 
So the UK has the lowest percentage of female engineering professionals in Europe, and Latvia, Bulgaria, and Cyprus have nearly 30%. Um, and nothing much has changed um, over quite a long time. That says since 2012. I would say it hasn't changed over much longer than that, looking at um, students in Cambridge. Um, if you look at apprenticeships, been a big push into apprenticeships. Tiny number go into the relevant um, engineering apprentices. 3.8% of the apprentices are women, and 1.7% in construction. And another number that hasn't changed for a very, very long time is the proportion who do A-level physics. It's been around 20% for at least the last 25 years. Nothing seems to make a difference. And I believe it's because of what, how we bring our children up. And it isn't endemic. I refuse to believe it's ordained by nature, because you only have to look at other countries. Um, so in India, for instance, over 30% of engineering students are women. This is some data I got from Innovate UK, which used to be the Technology Strategy Board, looking at specifically women in innovation. They find that women are less likely to seek external finance to take their ideas into the next stage. Um, they're much less likely to own a small business with their own employees. And again, this has fallen off the bottom, but 7% of British inventors um, on patents granted from 2000 to 2015 were women. 7%. Come on, women, we're not that dumb. We can do better than that. So, before I go on to look at some of the sort of cultural stereotypes, I want to give you a couple of examples. There's a site called Gendered Innovation. It's joint with the EU, but it's actually based in Stanford. And they've looked at various um, specific examples of where failing to think about gender when you're actually doing the innovation is a real problem. And the first example is crash test dummies. Um, so if you're designing a car, you have a lot of mock crashes with dummies. The dummies used have always been the standard American male, which is probably anyhow larger than a UK male, but is certainly larger than your average woman, and takes no account of the fact that a woman might be pregnant. And um, a lot of the um, fetal deaths arise from the way seatbelts are designed and how they impact on a pregnant woman. So this is a major problem. We're killing unborn children because we haven't thought about this. Well, we have now, but I mean, this was something that for years was not seen as a problem because people just weren't thinking in the round. They were, I suspect, male engineers thinking about male problems. Um, another example from this website is what happens in heart disease. Turns out that women present, um, if they're having a heart attack, they present at a hospital showing different symptoms from men. And that is now, again, recognised, but it took a very long time. Um, so, um, recognising that the, the underlying presentation will be different in women is crucial when you're training doctors um, and was missed for a very long time. And indeed, some of the diagnostic techniques um, work differently on men and women, and again, need to be thought about. And the drugs, likewise, are important in how you think about it. So there are all these things where just assuming your patient was a man and training doctors like that are going to lead to massive problems for half the population. So I would say we need to move away from thinking male by default. We need to think more generally, if we're thinking about innovation, um, and, and you know, men and women can think about innovation for men and women. So I just gave you two examples. Drug dosages and mechanisms is another one where a certain number of drugs had to be withdrawn. Ten drugs were withdrawn because of life-threatening health effects, which affected women more than men and just hadn't been properly factored in. Um, there are many examples beyond healthcare, and I'm not going to go into all of them, where if you don't think about who your consumer population is, if you don't factor in this half of the population, you are going to be missing opportunities or making mistakes. And yet, we have a STEM workforce which is overwhelmingly male and um, may miss some of this just because they haven't been trained to think about it. So let me get on to the stereotyping. 
these, I, I, I sometimes just despair. I have a granddaughter, she's seven months old. I would hate someone to buy her a baby grow that says, I hate my thighs. Um, it doesn't seem to me that is the way to start. Yeah, I mean, I just took this off the web. Um, this one says, girls can't what, and is a, uh, showing a, a would-be astronaut. That seems to me a slightly more positive message to give them. So we start off right from birth in sort of defining who they are by the way we handle them, the way we dress them, the toys we give them, how we interact with them, the language we use, the expectations we place on them, and that is true as a parent, as a grandparent, in schools, in peer groups, in play groups, everywhere. We have our stereotypical norms, which we often completely unwittingly impose on boys and girls. And um, if you haven't already come across Cordelia Fine's book called Delusions of Gender, I would thoroughly recommend it because it debunks a lot of these things, well, girls just don't like physics kind of arguments. It's far too naive. If you have conditioned a girl from birth to think that physics is not for her, then maybe she won't like physics, but that doesn't mean to say it was genetically determined. If we look at toys, um, again, this is going to be very instrumental in how a child defines their identity. So these are wordles, the, the size of the word um, indicates how often the word has appeared in toy advertising for boys on the left, for girls on the right. And you can see that boys are encouraged to think that battle and power are the way to get on in the world, whereas girls are encouraged to think that love and magic are. And I personally don't think magic and love... I mean, love may make the world go round, but it's not sufficient. Uh, <laughs> And as for magic, well, J.K. Rowling may believe in it, but you know, there are limitations. So those are incredibly subtle cues that children will pick up from the time they can start to read. And of course, the marketing drives a lot of this. Um, so let me take you through a little case study on Lego. I was brought up with Lego, um, and I really enjoyed building things with it, and the bricks were red and white, as far as I remember, back in my day. So here is a, a, something that appeared in a box of Lego toys dating to 1974. And if you can't read it, let me read it out to you, because I think it's really key to the way we think about things. This is addressed to the parents. The urge to create is equally strong in all children, boys and girls. It's imagination that counts, not skill. You build whatever comes into your head the way you want it, a bed or a truck, a doll's house or a spaceship. A lot of boys like dolls' houses. They're more human than spaceships. A lot of girls prefer spaceships. They're more exciting than dolls' houses. The most important thing is to put the right material in their hands and let them create whatever appeals to them. Now, that was 1974. And I would say we have gone a long way backwards since then. Um, you cannot imagine Lego putting that out now. I wish they would. So this is 1981. This was um, an advertisement. And again, it's showing the idea that it doesn't matter what you build, it's the building that matters, and it's a little girl with pigtails uh, just being allowed to play. Primary color type bricks there. Um, not, you will note, pink. However, that's what we get now. This is designed for girls, Lego friends. She can build um, hairdressers or a veterinary surgeon, and she's meant to look rather like a Disney princess. This is how we are limiting children's imagination, and the boys get the spaceships. And maybe the, the boys want to play with this, but would they be seen dead playing with something pink? So, we have various campaigns trying to counter this. This is Let Toys Be Toys, which has been quite influential in trying to encourage shops not to label one aisle for girls, one aisle for boys, but to mix them up. It doesn't stop the colouring, the pinkness of the girls' toys. Um, and they say, why does gender stereotype toy marketing matter? Kids should decide for themselves what they think is fun. And 
this is the problem, that we are being driven and influenced by marketing. Lego and any of these other companies, Bob, uh, Mattel, can sell more toys if they have a boy's aisle and a girl's aisle, because if you have one of each, then you feel obliged to buy more toys. Um, Pink Stinks is another um, campaign. Um, and again, very much focusing on the way things are marketed. Early Learning Center used to be a really good shop, but now it seems very stuck in these stereotypes. Um, and if you go to um, a lot of shops, I mean, the Science Museum got pilloried. I was a trustee at the time. The Science Museum got pilloried for, for selling, um, oh, I can't remember what they were, pajamas with spaceships on them or something, in a boys' sort of marketing area. It's not necessary. So we have a problem with our cultural messages. I get very cross, but I'm too pretty to do math, but that is American, because you never call it math in this country. Um, and then you have Barbie computer engineer, who has a nice pink computer. And, and the, the stories get worse. So if I continue with, with computer engineer, um, uh, Mattel tried to improve things, and they, they produced a whole series of books. I never saw them. I only read about these on the web. Um, the book that I'm going to quote from was subsequently withdrawn. Barbie says, I'm designing a game that shows kids how computers work. You can make a robot bot puppy do cute tricks by matching up colored bricks. I'm only creating the design ideas. I'll need Stephen and Brown's help to turn it into a real game. <laughs> Gets worse. She then goes on to get a computer virus. I tried to send you my designs, but I ended up crashing my laptop. So the boys have to step in. It will go faster if Brian and I help, offers Stephen. Great, says Barbie. The boys conclude, step aside, Barbie. You've broken enough now. And that is meant to encourage a girl to go into computing. As I say, the book was withdrawn. There was a huge fuss about it. But one kind of wonders what the manufacturers are thinking when they produce that. There was another um, example not so long ago. The EU decided to produce a video um, called Science, It's Girls Thing. And this was also withdrawn within about 24 hours because they had three girls looking rather more like um, they were advertising uh, some makeup. They seemed to have a lot of lipstick and more high heels. And, and the only man in the film was sort of taking his glasses off and looking at these girls in a rather suggestive way. What, what they thought when they produced it, I, I just don't know. Um, engineering Barbie, so let me go to this year, 2017. Again, they th um, the manufacturers thought, we will do better than this. I, I discovered this because Telegraph rang me up and asked me to comment. Um, she can make pink things movable clothes hanger, and a washing machine. <laughs> so there we have it, the girl's place is in the home. Um, she can make things, but only if they're domestically useful and help her with her chores. I don't think we've got to the right place yet. That's 2017. So if we are trying to encourage girls to think about an engineering career, I would say we can do better. And a lot of the professional bodies are indeed working really hard, but I do not think our toy manufacturers are doing a good job for us. And the problems are also... Oh, yes, let me f show you this one. This is an image to try and encourage girls to think about engineering from a building site in Manchester. No, I think it was the Radisson Hotel. <sighs> yeah, I'm not going to comment on that. So, schools have a role to play, and they don't always get it right either. I think, um, and, and I'm sure there are many teachers in the audience, it's half-term, you've escaped. Um, but I do worry that sometimes, without really thinking about it, schools just go down the same stereotypical paths. Um, I hear too many people coming to me and saying, oh, my daughter, 11-year-old daughter was told she does maths like a boy. What does that mean? or um, you know, that the school is dissuading a girl from trying to do physics or engineering or something. It's very depressing. So here, work experience. Work experience, you'd have thought, was a wonderful opportunity. I'm a great believer in it, in sending children out at sort of 15, 16, 17 into the workplace to see what a job of work is like. Now, admittedly, this is quite old data, because I couldn't find... There was an Ofsted report, and I couldn't find it. Um, the Ofsted report was saying how badly uh, gendered the work experience placements were, by and large. So, working with children, this sample, a small sample, sent 43 
girls to work with children and two boys. In engineering, 31 boys and not a single girl. Hair and beauty is the same, 23 girls, two boys. And office work, that was obviously seen as fairly unisex, so that was nearer even numbers. But if, if you are a 15-year-old girl who's thinking, maybe, maybe I could just go and be an engineering apprentice, and you sent down to the nearest tassel to learn how to sweep the floor from the hair cuttings, you're not going to get much exposure to what you really want to know. And I do think our schools can do better on that kind of uh, thing, where there is no reason to be so stereotyped. And it is, of course, the case that gender stereotyping cuts both ways. So this is data from the Institute of Physics uh, 2013 report, looking at different A-levels. Um, so on the left, we have physics A-level. Then it's economics, maths, biology, English, and psychology. And the orange bars are the girls, and the, the red are the boys. And what you can see in physics, as I say, it's about 20% girls doing physics. But in psychology and English, it's about 75% girls, which means that we are equally discouraging boys from a lot of uh, careers by not treating them equally. We're sort of steering them. Um, maths is interesting, because the number of girls doing maths has really shot up. So computing isn't even on here, but 12 times as many boys as girls did computing at A-level in 2013. And Again, a subject that isn't on there, but ties in with biology. In Cambridge, our vet school has an entry that's about 80% girls. So, you know, we're somehow saying to boys, you should not care about animals. Um, th these stereotypes do cut both ways. Although I'm passionate about girls and physics and engineering, we should realize that we are affecting our boys' education too. If we look at um, A-level, if, if you are... Um, doing science subjects at A-level. This is um, data from the Royal Society. So uh, the size of the letter, again, indicates the frequency with which it occurs, B for biology, C for chemistry, and P for physics. And you'll see that biology or biology and chemistry are the commonest combination, but it's very different between girls and boys. So for boys, a large number simply do physics as an A-level subject. Um, BCP is the three sciences A-level. Um, for girls, overwhelmingly, they're doing either biology on its own or biology and chemistry. Um, and, and you can't go on to do engineering. You can, and to go back to where I started, you are unlikely to go on to be a, an inventor, an innovator in many areas if you haven't done physics A-level and then an engineering-type degree. Um, this is data that is sort of by the by. I'm more used to giving talks about purely academic um, issues. So this is looking at the fall-off in percentage of women at different stages. This is data from my own university. And um, whereas at researcher level, when you are essentially working for someone else, we're close to 50-50. By the time you get to professor level in the science subjects, we're down to about 12 14%. If you look at the non-science subjects, so here I've used the acronym SET, Science, Engineering, Technology, rather than STEM, but this is the fall-off, the upper dashed line is the fall-off um, in academic positions in Cambridge for the non-science subjects, and the fall-off is almost as bad, um, it just happens a bit later. So we have a problem in our universities too, which is a different matter. Interestingly, although the proportion of professors in Cambridge is low, the uh, proportion amongst my fellow heads of house, so other masters or presidents or whatever they're called in the Cambridge colleges, we are now about a third female, so completely out of line with that, which is encouraging in a certain sense. And it reflects the fact that heads of house have often come from um, outside academia. So if we look at university in a bit more detail, so this is undergraduate science qualifications at HE institutions um, by gender. And at the top, 82% are female in uh, the group called subjects allied to medicine, things like nursing. Uh, again, veterinary science is very high. And down at the bottom, we have computer science at 17% girls and engineering and technology at 14%. And even starting from those really low numbers, if we look at the percentage that, of engineering graduates who go into the workforce, whereas 71% of the men will go on into the engineering 
workforce in some way, um, a much lower percentage, 58.7% of women go on. So even if you've stuck it out and gone to university and done an engineering degree, you are likely to fall by the wayside after that for many different reasons, probably including the fact that if you go to a firm where 70% of the workforce is male, you may not feel you want to be there. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons that feed into this, and I'm not going to try and analyse them, but it's important to realise that, that we don't even retain the women we train. And if you look in the, the industries within the broader STEM area, um, it varies, the proportion of girls varies by area. So at the top, we have professional, scientific, and technical, where about a third are women. Down at the bottom, we have construction, where only 12% are women. And the other areas fall in between things like transport, um, ICT, and things like that. So in all of them, though, the percentages of women are low. So I would say, if we look at the innovation angle, it may not require a woman to think about pregnant women in crash dummies or how a woman presents in a hospital with a heart attack, but um, it's a good idea to have a diverse team. And here you might want to broaden away from gender to all kinds of diverse, uh, diversity. Um, there's also the economic argument. We discouraging women from STEM subjects when perhaps they really wanted to do it, but somehow culturally pushing them away means our workforce isn't realizing its full potential. And if then even those who stick it out and do an engineering degree don't enter the engineering workforce, what are we doing then? Why are we wasting this talent? And there's always the question, which might offend some of you in the room, are we keeping less good men in science and losing brighter women? Um, are we necessarily getting the best talent? So to go back to the innovation angle, are we really doing the best we can with our young and making sure they contribute as much as they can to innovation and therefore to our economy? There is, of course, the moral angle. I will leave the moral angle there. I mean, I just think not allowing our young girls to fulfill their potential but actively discouraging them is just deeply depressing. So some facts and quotes before I wrap up. Again, you may not be able to read these at the back. On the CBI website, employers say, employees say that 83% more likely to innovate and more than twice as engaged in workplaces that are both diverse and inclusive. So a diverse workplace, an inclusive workplace, is likely to be a better place to work. The Harvard Business Review said, Diversity unlocks innovation by creating an environment where outside-the-box ideas are heard. When minorities form a critical mass and leaders value differences, all employees can find senior people to go to bat for compelling ideas and can persuade those in charge of budgets to deploy resources to develop these ideas. Employees of firms with 2D diversity are 45% likelier to report a growth in market share over the previous year and 70% likelier to report that the firm captured a new market. So diversity is good for business. I mean, it's just a no-brainer. Um, and um, a, a National Center for Women in Information Technology report said that gender-balanced companies performed better financially, demonstrated superior team dynamics and productivity, Gender-diverse technology organizations produce work teams that stay on schedule and under budget and demonstrate improved employee performance. So again, there are all these positives of having a diverse workforce. So why are we not doing it? Um, there's also this, I found this very recently, I think this is a woman called Polly Arnold who went on Women's Hour, and she quoted a statistic of a two billion pounds a year that is being lost by losing women from the task, the workforce. I don't know where she got that figure from, but it's fairly mind-blowing. There are a lot of organizations that are involved in trying to, to get change going. Um, so this one is uh, Science Girl, um, Code First, so this is more specifically about computing. Uh, WISE, the campaign for gender balance in science, engineering and science technology and engineering. Um, Institute of Physics, um, which I've been very involved with, trying to do interventions in schools to prevent the, the, the wrong choices, if you like, being made. So I'll finish up with two slides. First of all, my conclusion side. Um, that we seem as a society 
determined to give different messages to boys and girls. And I would argue that is bad for both, that we are not allowing them to fulfill their potential in whichever direction that wants to go. And we see gender segregation as a result in many places of work. I believe that for innovation, to go back to where I started, we need diverse teams and diverse skills, best achieved by having diversity in a very, very broad sense. We make that difficult for ourselves because of our cultural stereotyping, and we do seem much worse than many other countries. And so again, we can come up with different numbers. This is numbers from Deloitte. Um, that if we had more women-led SMEs, small, medium-sized enterprises, we would make a big difference to our GDP. Um, so we have this huge untapped reservoir of talent, and we should be doing better. And as we are in these very turbulent times and our economy is stagnating, it's perhaps even more important than ever that we get this right. The final slide I will use is a slide um, of suggestions I put forward two or three years ago, more specifically designed to make a supportive environment for women in science, um, once they've become women in science, if you like, rather than at school. But there are many things that I think many of you in this audience could help with in our everyday life. So I'll leave this with you. I call it just one action for women in science. There are things you can do to affect schools. One of the things we tried to get Ofsted to do was require them to produce data on how many girls progress to different subjects at A-level. Um, so asking schools about the progression is quite key. Um, but challenging teachers. Um, so my son, to go back to the problem of boys in English, my son at 11 had a teacher who said to us at a parents' evening, well, boys just can't do languages. And, you know, that is every bit as bad as everything I've been saying about girls and physics. So calling out teachers who just, without thinking, make these assumptions, I think is really important. And it's probably something that everyone in this room can do at some point. So I'll leave that slide up now and take questions. Okay, there's one there, and there's one on that side. Oh, okay, that's the one I was the... Right. Um, I know that girls' schools in particular are the ones who, that often put um, forward girls doing like STEM subjects at A-level, so do you think that mixed schools, they should be the ones putting like an extra push into putting more girls into STEM subjects? I think that's right. The evidence, and again, the Institute of Physics did a lot of work on this, showed that girls were much more likely to stay with uh, physics A-level if they were at a single-sex school. Um, I think it is harder to see exactly where the problems are in the mixed school. Is it the teacher or is it the peer group? Um, or is it even the parents' choices of which school they send their children to? There are many different reasons, but I think there are interventions you can do. And the IOP filmed uh, teachers and showed them the way they interacted with boys and girls, and a lot of teachers just had no awareness. If it's anything like they, they let the girls sit quietly in the corner and don't sort of draw them in or something like that. So I think it is the mixed schools where the problems seem more acute. But I would say the problems start much earlier. You know, I think the problems start at birth and, and there's a huge amount one can do there. Yes, there was a, someone... Right. How damaging do you think it is that another Cambridge University professor, Simon Baron-Cohen who will be speaking here at the festival tomorrow, said, and I quote, we should not ever expect to see 50-50 representation yes. in STEM fields unless we introduce social policies for reasons other than scientific. Okay. And, and so do I, you think that Cambridge University has any kind of responsibility to allow that kind of message to be... Uh, I've sat on panels with Simon, and he's always very careful in what he says to me. Um, <laughs> Um, I think what I have never said is that we, that 50-50 is where you would expect to be. Because I genuinely don't know, and if you read Cordelia Fine, she is very much 
saying that most of the tests, I mean, she attacked Simon Baron-Cohen a lot for his uh, various experiments, that you cannot disentangle the way a child has already been interacted with when you try and say, oh, look, at two, it's got a preference for this. And I think we just don't know what the inherent differences are. I mean, clearly, there are hormonal differences. There have to be differences. All I care about is the fact that girls who do want to do the subjects are dissuaded. I mean, I know so many people who would who would say to me, you know, my, my school teachers said, oh, why don't you do English, why don't you do psychology? I really wanted to do maths at A-level, but they discouraged me. And that, I think, is where the problem is. Whether it should be 50-50, I don't know. And, and Simon, I'm sure, can defend his own experiments. I've not seen him and Cordelia in a room. Um, <laughs> could be interesting. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the extreme male brain... Yeah, I, I don't know. But I, I, th I think we have to recognise that wherever the natural point is, which might be 50-50, it might not. Um, we aren't there now. I'm absolutely convinced by it. And the data on single-sex schools and the progression of girls, I think, really illustrates that. That, that you know, you're twice as likely, I think, if I remember the statistics right, to stay on and do physics A-level to single-sex school from a mixed school. So... I, I, when, when I was on the Today programme and debating these results, and the head teacher I was paired with said, well, maybe girls just don't like physics. I thought, have you listened to anything I've said? Um, so um, we have a way to go in knowing where the balance should be, I think. I don't think the university... I think if the university just started saying we can't have Sam, Simon Baron-Cohen saying this, I think that would come down to... A censorship. I don't think I'd approve of that. People can look at the way he does experiments and decide whether they agree with him or not. There was a question at the um, back. Right, OK. Oh, yes. um, uh, you didn't talk at all about the importance of role models. Um, and uh, that seems to me to be kind of crucial because um, I actually work for a large American technology company which suffers very, very badly on uh, gender equality in the workforce to its detriment, to its absolute detriment for all the reasons exactly that you outlined. Um, but they think of this problem, they're very acutely aware of this problem, they think of this problem at all, but they think of it in terms of a funnel. You've got to fill up the yeah. funnel at the bottom yeah. to get the numbers of yep. people out at the top. It's not a funnel, it's a cycle. Yeah. The, reason, the reason you don't get people coming in and staying in exactly as you say is because we don't have enough people at the top. Yep. So do we need quotas on boards? Do we need um, you know, uh, schemes that are going to support, you know, put extra effort into supporting women to overcome yes. those barriers yes. when they drop out of yes. their careers? Um, and is that the only way that we're actually going to make progress on this? Well, you started off with role models. The evidence on role models is inconclusive. It isn't that obvious. Um, because I think what you need is a role model just that bit ahead of you. You know, I, I never feel I'm a good role model to an 18-year-old because, you know, I'm just old. Um, so uh, it's not clear, but I think support is crucial. If you're in a minority, you can feel really uh, diminished. Yes, that person's been trying to ask a question. That one. Um, and I think having support groups is very important and making sure that your practices aren't accidentally disadvantageous. One of the arguments we've been having in Cambridge, and this is where the, sorry, this is where the university is trying to play a role, is what are our promotion criteria? And do we value mega grants rather than looking after your research team, for instance. And you could change the promotion criteria, and you could make part-time working respectable. We have two women in Cambridge who are professors not working full-time, and I don't think we talk about that enough. And they jointly, I mean, they're in the same area, they jointly run a research group, they jointly have an EPSLC fellowship. We should really trumpet that. It is possible, because I think that's what matters. <laughs> right, you were trying to ask Thank you. You mentioned the Royal Society and the portraits there and how they may well be off-putting. What, what exactly is it about them and who do you think should be removed? <laughs> <laughs> well, the reality is that 18th century... Um, the 18th century portraits are often of people you've never heard of because at that point a lot of them were aristocratic people who were dilettantes. They are, I mean, I wouldn't suggest you remove Charles Darwin. Um, but I think there are utterly unmemorable people who are just there because they've always been there. And it is, uh, you know, the Rossati is very, very conscious of this, and, and they are trying to improve things by having photographs, because they haven't yet got the 
portraits of women. If you are having, say, the, the Summer Science Exhibition at the Royal Society, and you are getting school children coming in and walking through those grand rooms, I think you need to see a diverse bunch of faces on the wall. I don't think someone, an 18th century gentleman in a wig you've never heard of is going to inspire anyone. Right. Hello. Um, thank you very much for your talk, and I really do, do um, believe everything that you said about birth, and um, I have three granddaughters, and it's been a bit of a struggle. Um, but there, there is another aspect to, to this that I wonder whether you think would be helpful. If organisations or even levels in schools prepared themselves thoroughly to accept women before they arrive. Otherwise, it's ex I know from it, long experience, it's extremely debilitating to arrive in an organisation that never really thought it was going to have a woman anyway. It comes down to not having proper laboratories for women for a start. But if people really thought through what it, how this organisation is going to function when women are there and are waiting for them, then would you not agree that's oh, well, like, something I think, we need to work on? I think for employers that's right. I mean, things like a space where you can express milk, for instance, um, so that women don't have to feel that they are excluded from coming back to work. I think there are examples. I, I'm slightly nervous about the argument about laboratories. When Cambridge colleges went mixed, when Oxford colleges went mixed, uh, people got very hung up on the need to have full-length mirrors. And although full-length mirrors are important, I don't think that was a reason for delaying admitting women. Um, so I think you have to be slightly careful about that. I think there are practical things that can be done. Um, personally, I think making flexible stroke part-time working feasible is probably the most crucial thing. We still... And, and returning from work, and I, I will blow Cambridge's trumpet here, because we introduced the scheme during the time I was gender equality champion, though it wasn't solely my doing, where we... Um, anyone who'd been off for more than six months or more, which could be caring, it could be sickness, and it could be pregnancy, they could apply for a grant of £15,000 to help them get their research back on track, and they could use it any way they wanted, including, for instance, something you could never write on a research grant, taking your mother-in-law to a conference so that she could look after the baby. And it, it's had a tremendous effect because um, people have felt encouraged by that. The money involved was not that great, but it made a terrific difference to morale, and I think we can do more of that kind of thing. Right, who's got the mic? <laughs> Loads of hands. Let's start. Right, I yes. have a mic here. I was going to ask about mixed schools, and that question's been answered. I can ask another one. Sometimes I see children being interviewed about, you know, why they're not going to do... Girls aren't going to do science. And they say, oh, I want to do something creative. Oh. <laughs> and I find myself shouting at the television. I have another talk on that one, yes. Why can't... I mean, is it because some way at school, it must be the O-level um, GCSE time, but because they're, they're going to select their A-level subject. Yes, yes. That somehow... the the um, teaching doesn't get through to them. How creative uh, yeah. science, engineering, uh, yes. chemical engineering, yes, chemistry, makeup. You're absolutely right, because school science often doesn't have the scope to be creative. You can't do original experiments in the way we used to. Um, and I think some teachers believe this, and this is where I think the whole school needs to be involved, because... An English teacher who has read Blake will probably be giving the wrong impression because he said something along the lines of um, art is the tree of life, science is the tree of death. And, you know, the idea that science is all about mensuration, which I think was Carlyle, um, that it's, it's not about creativity. And I have another talk that's entirely about why science is creative. But we need to get scientists and artists to work together at a place like this to say just how creative it can be. And, you know, I'm a, a great fan of Richard Holmes, who's run, written a wonderful book about the science of wonder. It taught me a huge amount... Um, I think we need to get past this, and I think school science is pretty boring. I hate to say it. It is facts. Right, the mic moved there. Any men want to ask questions, by the way? 
Uh, thank you, Athena. It's Dawn Bonfield. Can I just say quickly a quick plug for the Women's Engineering Society who are coming up to 100 years old in two yeah. years and have been doing this gender um, yes, equality. Absolutely. I, th I think I had some of your for slides. A long time. You did. Um, so, my question is what if you had unlimited amount of money, what would, you, what would be the one thing that you did to address this problem at any point? Of the well, one of the things I've always felt would be a good thing to do would be to have a female engineering apprentice in a soap opera. So any media producers out there, I think that would be good. I would kill the marketing budget for a lot of the toy firms. Uh, <laughs> is, is that enough? <laughs> right. Hi. Hi, thank you. Um, I just wanted to say thank you very much. It's absolutely um, critical that you're doing this discussion. And I'm really glad to hear there's lots of teachers in the audience. I'm an executive principal who has been incensed by the lack of focus on uh, young females in our schools. Um, I work in impoverished areas in the East Midlands mm. Challenge. Schools um, have... One of the key issues is that we do not um, seem to push science uh, primary school. So we test them to death in maths and English, all elements of English, including grammar, that I suspect half of us, uh, sort of 40 plus, have no idea what we're talking about. Um, and we do not push the sciences, and if we do, it tends to be biology-focused, exactly yeah. as you said, so they might do some heart dissection or eyes or whatever. Um, so are we lobbying the government enough about planning the trajectory of young women um, from the point where we are pushing science in a completely different way in primary school so that they become engaged and passioned, uh, impassioned about it to then have that trajectory on career entry, as the gentleman behind was speaking earlier, um, about exactly what you picked up on. Um, whereby they have the right kind of breaks and support mechanisms so that you can go and have a child yeah. Yeah. and your brain is not considered to be less valuable uh, because of that. Yeah. So at primary school, I think most children do get a chance to play and therefore discover, and the creativity is still there. I think one of the problems is... Um, the statistics show that something like 5% of primary school teachers have a science qualification and 2% have a maths qualification or something. So many primary school teachers are really quite frightened about science and not necessarily able... I mean, this has nothing to do with gender, but they are not necessarily able to support children who are really curious. Um, at secondary school... Um, uh, I come back to the fact that there are lots of things that can be done by parents asking about what the school is doing. Because if, if Ofsted would only require it as part of the reports that you had to give information about the gender breakdown of subjects, I think that that would become a topic that people could raise more easily at parents' evenings and things. And I chair the Royal Society Education Committee 5 to 19, and we had a lot of interaction with ministers there. And um, at that point, it was, um, oh, what was her name? Uh, Liz Truss. And she said that, yes, they would, you know, encourage this to be part of things, but I don't think it was ever enshrined in anything formal, and then she moved on to some other role. Um, I think a lot more can be done to focus schools' minds on it, and parent power is a key thing, as well as teachers themselves just... Again, it's thinking outside the box, perhaps, to, to prepare. And the leadership, whatever organisation you're in, the leadership is crucial, absolutely crucial. And I think head teachers or whatever who, who are sensitive to this can make an enormous difference because it's quite subtle. Um, there are loads of hands. Who's got the mic now? <laughs> you mentioned um, about the cultural influences on the way people bring things up. A lot of it come down, comes down to language, because language is male-weighted. You mentioned in your own college that there are masters. I have no idea if the masters are male or female. They can't be called mistresses because that has sexual overtones. So we need to find gender-neutral yeah. words to describe how we look at people. Yes, I mean, I, uh, it's true. I, I tend not to care. I mean, I was asked, did I mind being a master? And as you say, I did not want to be a mistress. Um, and it turned out in Churchill, they'd had the debate previously between president and warden, and the college was split, and it just didn't seem important enough to me. Chair seems to have become a perfectly respectable word for chairing a committee, not chairman or chairwoman. Um, 
it's, it's not something I personally feel very strongly about. Now, whether if I was a 12-year-old girl, I would feel much stronger, I don't know. I mean, teachers will probably have a better feel for that. Um, I think it's the practical things I want to get at. Hello? Hello? Hello. I'm over here. <laughs> right. Sorry. I'm over here? Ah, over there. Sorry. I, I, the I, mic's very confusing. I was going to talk about the importance of um, industries making sure that part-time working was more practical for women, but someone's dealt with that. And there's one thing that makes me very angry about uh, gender equality is people talk about quotas. And to me, that just seems to invalidate a woman's presence somewhere and leave her open to that sort of criticism. What do you think about that? Um, I think there are situations on boards I feel a little less bothered about because there is often a really large pool of talent. But if... So when I was in the States, they were very keen on affirmative action at that point, and I was in an engineering faculty, and they said, we will create a faculty position for any engineering department that can find a woman. And in due course, I was offered the position. I didn't take it for, for lots of reasons, but which weren't to do with it was affirmative action. But I am now so glad, because you hear, oh, you were only appointed because you're a woman. I think it's disastrous. So there are situations where I feel it, it may be as good. I personally prefer targets, because that's less mandatory. Um, but I think it, it does help to change the mindset. Uh, I've got a question here. <laughs> oh, they're going to be cut off. I'm going to be cut off. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>